Welcome to Grad Life by the Horns, the bi-weekly podcast hosted by Becky Hills and Sophie Scully. We're here to make your 20s that little bit less scary. Touching on everything from career anxiety, struggling to pay your rent, and the imposter syndrome that we all feel but no one talks about, this podcast will prove that ultimately we're all in the same boat. And welcome back to another episode of Grad Life by the Horns. This week, Sophie and I sat down with the wonderful Akil Shah to chat about all things practical about getting a job following graduation. Akil is a corporate finance analyst at St. James Place, who are a wealth management company. So he kindly invited us into his office and we chatted about video interviews, assessment centres, how to get a foot on the ladder, mentoring, coaching, so much really useful practical stuff that we've not touched on before. Akil is an absolute font of knowledge. He is so kind and generous with his time and he said that if anybody wants to reach out to him to discuss kind of opportunities or advice or anything like that, his LinkedIn DMs are open. It was an absolute pleasure to chat to Akil. I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode because it's so different to what we've done in the past. I really hope you enjoy it. As per usual, please make sure to follow us on social media, just at gradlifebythehorns on Instagram and Akil is on LinkedIn. Just search Akil Shah, St. James's Place. I really hope you enjoy it and Sophie will be back at the end to round up the episode. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome Akil. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me on. You're welcome, you're welcome. So we tend to start our episodes with just two simple questions just to kind of ease you in a little bit. So the first one is what's gone wrong recently for you? For me personally? Mm. Nothing actually. Life's been pretty good, which is a bit of a surprise, but then we're only a couple of weeks into January, so yeah. I'm sure 2020's got a couple of shocks and surprises <laughs> Brilliant. That's not. I think that's the yeah. first time we've ever never had, had anyone that hasn't got anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. And what's gone on for you? So, what's going on in your life? So, other than work, so I ran the marathon last year, which was great, but I haven't really run since. So, I've committed myself as my New Year's resolution to trying to run a minimum of two hundred miles this year. Ooh. So that's going okay at the moment, which is good. And other than that, just trying to find time for my social life, really. Mm. Have you got an app to help you if you're running, or are you doing it all? Yeah, yeah I do. So I use an app called Strava. Oh, I use Strava. It's good. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love the little bit at the end of the year where it's like, you've done this many miles. I'm like, yay, <laughs> I've succeeded. Maybe I should join this bandwagon. Yeah, like, definitely yeah. get on Strava. It's good. Okay. So good. Does it help you stay disciplined and stuff? No. No? Yeah, it's not particularly <laughs> motivational. It just says, somebody you know has posted a run today that just makes you feel really guilty. Oh. <laughs> so it's really good for that. Can you follow people? Um, yeah, it's like so social networking for exercising. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> sounds scary to me. But anyway, that sounds brilliant. Well done. So I think a good place to start really is to talk about your university life. And you went to Durham yep. for your undergrad. I did, And yeah. then you transferred to the University of Chicago for your postgrad. I did. So do you just want to tell us a little bit more about that, like what your course was about and what the transition was like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at Durham I studied politics which was brilliant, so I had three years of really interesting classes. Durham, they've got a really good Middle Eastern Studies department. And then, being completely honest, at 2021, 20, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Ended up applying for maybe 150, 200 jobs, something ridiculous. So n- none of them were 
really good applications. I wasn't standing out at all. And that made me think, actually, I'm not ready to go into work yet. I have no idea what I want to do, but I know I'm interested in Middle Eastern politics. So applied to a couple of universities in the States because they're two-year master's programs. Ended up getting into the University of Chicago and, yeah, never looked back, really. So I went over there, was there between 2014 and 2016. Studied Middle Eastern politics, learned Arabic, which was both terrifying but also quite cool. And just had an incredible time. Learned a lot about myself. It sounds really cliche and really cheesy, but genuinely grew up because Durham's only a couple of hours from home for me. So going home on the weekends, getting fed, mum would do my washing. It's a completely (laughs) different way of life. Everything was, you know, something that I had to handle myself. Got a job out there to support myself as well. And it just helped me become really independent and also helped me realise that Financial services was where I wanted to be, kind of perfectly complements my interests in politics, obviously for my degrees, but also how that links in with everything that's going on around us in terms of, you know, we're all paying taxes now. How does that impact us? Like we know about it. Exactly. Lovely tax. Um, You know, there's pressures to save, there's pressures to get on the housing ladder as soon as possible. And actually just being in this kind of an environment and being in finance, I've learned a lot again, about how to manage that, manage people's expectations of that as well. So no, it's, it's been, yeah, it was a really, really good time for me. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Wow, because that is big transition, isn't it? Yeah, it like was. Like I said, being hours from home and going to Chicago. So I think logistically, people are often scared from traveling abroad to do postgraduate. How easy was the process or was it difficult in terms of because you worked out there as well, so all the visas and everything that came with it, what was the kind of the summary of the process? Yeah, no, so a really fair question. The visa process isn't fun, I can mm. 100% tell you that. It's not like just applying for an Esther online. So I got my acceptance in March, I think, and then I spent the next few months just trying to figure out what I needed to do. But the great thing is, is when you go to study abroad, all of the universities that you go to have international departments that help you ease that transition. I'd say the most terrifying part was going to the US Embassy, having to hand over my passport, you know, tell them how I was gonna pay for it, tell them that I was gonna be only there for two years and I promised I wasn't gonna do anything dodgy. And then, yeah, so the support's definitely there. Uh, They also helped me find housing, which was, again, a huge relief and nice just to know that I didn't have to panic when I got there about where I was gonna live. The only other thing I'd mention is, uh, yeah, border control in the US is interesting. I'm sure people listening and, and you <laughs> I've guys. I've heard a lot about it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, the first time I went over. You know, normally you, you kind of have your passport looked at. They look at your face a couple of times, make sure you're not, you know, you're not someone else. But when I got there, I don't know if he was genuinely interested in what I was studying, or if he just wanted to give me a hard time. But the guy at border control spent best part of an hour and a quarter, just grilling me on the oh Middle my East. Oh god, an hour and a quarter? Yeah. That's horrendous. Yeah, it, it was genuinely terrible. behind you must have gotten so angry. <laughs> I was going to say, what was the cue like? <laughs> they wow. started moving people to different lines. Jeez. But did they prepare you for that? Did they, no. did they tell you it's going to be? I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> my god. god so, I would have hated that. I genuinely don't know if it was just because he was bored. Or because he just thought... Yeah, I suppose that job can't be, be particularly interesting, so they've got to find some way of making their day slightly more interesting. 
I appreciate the heads up though, because I'm planning to go to America this summer, so I, it's good to know that I'm like. <laughs> if someone's like talking to you for an hour and a half, Sophie, you'd be loving it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's very true, actually. <laughs> I'm probably driving mad. <laughs> no, that's really interesting to know, actually. And what would you say was the best thing about doing a postgrad in Chicago? It again, oh, if this is the second time I've said something really cliche and cheesy. Um, so we doing, love a cliche. We yeah. love it. So I'm doing really well on that. It's, so genuinely, it's the, the friends that I made over there. So I was the youngest by a good three or four years when I started. And my housemate in my second year, good few years older than me, I was out for his wedding a couple of years ago, you know, regularly keeping in contact with all those guys. And we've all doing, we're all kind of doing our own thing, doing very different career paths, or going down very different career paths. And just keeping up with them out there, knowing that I've got a place to crash in a couple of different states in the US. It's, yeah, it's just the friendships that I made out there. I'd say the other great thing, and it, the US gets a hard time for the beer that they produce, but genuinely, the beer out there, if you're a fan of IPAs, <laughs> unbelievable. Is it better than British bitter, though? I'm not a bitter fan. Ah, uh, so we've got a bias. <laughs> so, yeah, if you love an IPA, 100% yeah. Go it's... Go to America. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. A lot of people would just like to know, like, if there was one thing that you would tell someone who was thinking about going abroad to study, what would be that thing? Do it. Just do it. Honestly, best experience I've had. Like I said, you you learn a lot about yourself, and it, it is such a cliche, but you genuinely have so much time to think about things, to think about what you want, you know, what you're life's going to look like in the next few years but also being away from home teaches you to genuinely be independent Mm. so from multiple perspectives if you're thinking about doing it just just go for it Mm. how does it differ to uk universities durham in particular (laughs) yeah so the biggest issue obviously is if you're not 21 you can't technically drink but, I love the way you added technically in yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Everyone finds a way around it somehow. Yeah. Um, but I think that that culture, so obviously there's the, the fraternity and the sorority kind of cultures out there. The University of Chicago, is, if you're an undergraduate, is one of the most intense places I think I've ever been. Yeah, from a massive perspective, it's great and it's not that difficult. But I remember going to university out there, my first couple of days, you know, we'd gone out, got to know each other. So a little bit hungover, we were getting a tour of the library and there were already first years in there working on papers. So it's really a really different environment. But I think the, just the, the way people are, it's just a different lifestyle out there, especially if you're in a big city. But actually, yeah, I think it's a really great experience and it's something, again, going back to your question before about what would I say to people thinking about it? It's another experience and it's just a chance to go and do something completely different. Mm. Did you end up joining in like a fraternity? No, I went to a few sorority parties, but uh, no. Was... Are they as bad as everyone's, like they show them in the films? <laughs> um, I know, not at the University of Chicago, it's quite tame, relatively. But yeah, some of the stories I heard were pretty bad. I know, they look, so, it looks like uni sports teams, but like times a thousand. <laughs> exactly. And it's, yeah you know, daily as opposed to on Bucks Nights. <laughs> it's crazy. So I, it sounds so cool to me because I went to Loughborough, which is because it's, it's so campusy, it's very Americanised anyway, and yeah. because it's sporty. Like, all the halls are against each other, so I I can kind of envision, like, being in that environment, but I think America is just, like, a hundred times, isn't it? Anything yeah. in the UK. Yeah. It's definitely in your face. 
Yeah. But it's great. It's, it's a great thing to, to have. So when was it that you decided that you wanted to kind of move away from the politics stuff you were studying and move into the financial services sector? Um, so I think probably the biggest pull initially was financial motivation, which now I think about it, it sounds ridiculous. But if you want a good job in politics, you can go down the kind of insurance route and become an underwriter. But the other options are kind of go down the MP route or kind of go down the, the political risk group. And a lot of times you either need a PhD or they don't pay brilliantly. So think tanks in particular. So I kind of got to thinking what a good balance would be between still allowing me to look at politics and keep that up as an interest, but also that allowed me to, you know, actually keep myself going from a financial standpoint. And yeah, financial services is a really good kind of middle ground for me. Yeah, there's always something new going on, but actually, you know, politics and economics are so intrinsically linked that, yeah, just make perfect sense. Because you've worked at St. James's for over two years now, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And um, I was quite interested when I was looking at your LinkedIn, obviously, that you were, um, I can't remember what the term was actually, but you were a a rotational graduate for in quite a few different forms, you public policy, corporate finance, risk management, and regional yeah. as well. Yeah. So can you kind of tell us what a rotational graduate in this context means? Like, what were your roles? Absolutely. So the rotational scheme at SJP, so St James's Place, basically gives you an opportunity to look at six different areas of the business. And you know, actually, one of the things that people think when they think working in finance is you either work at a bank or you work in consulting and so everything's numbers based and it's all really technical. The great thing about this scheme is you can do rotations across multiple disciplines. So for me, I went down the numbers route because that's my thing. But actually, if you wanted to do rotations in marketing, HR, in our field team, so working directly with our financial advisors, those opportunities are all there for you. And as a rotational graduate, there's not that many of us, so the demand for us is quite high. So actually it means that you get involved in really great projects and really great initiatives from day one. You're given that responsibility, you're given that opportunity to kind of prove you have what it takes to deliver. But that's all captured within a really nice supportive environment where you know, you've got mentors, you've got buddies who can just take you through that whole life cycle because you know, we've been there, been in that position. And it's a really great environment to be in. The other great thing is, is so St. James's Place and a lot of companies across the financial services sector will put you through professional qualifications as well. And it's not just limited to investment specific ones or risk specific ones. Again, there are ones that people in my intake did from a marketing perspective, from a customer service perspective. So yeah, rotational in this sense is just getting a really good idea of the business and trying to, again, it's almost like being at university and trying to figure out what you want to do in the first place. So yeah. it's another three years that you've got the opportunity to really understand what it is you enjoy and where it is you want to go in terms of final career mm. kind of path and choice. Yeah, and that's so interesting because I think that so many people, they think a grad scheme is you're doing one thing and then you're trapped in that for life. So I'm like, oh, I've got on this scheme, it's amazing. And they're like, oh, actually, I might not actually like it. So that's a really interesting way of doing it to actually rotate you across different things. And what was it that you found out of that that was the most interesting? Just the, the network that I've built. So I've met so many interesting people and I'm a firm believer that it doesn't matter what level someone is or how experienced or even how much they know about certain things, you can always learn at least one or two things from different people. And for me, that's been 
absolutely brilliant because it means that I can take things that people do really, really well and think about how I can apply them in my day-to-day job. And we've got a lot of brilliant people at SJP. So the network I've, I've built up and the people I know, the people I can go to for advice and support, it, it's phenomenal. Wow. It's like you, the way you can look at being a rotational graduate is that it's almost like having modules that you can pick. And it's, it's, really, it's really cool, actually. Yeah. And when I was um, reading The Investor, actually, the article that you featured in about diversity, I noticed that they said that they're bec- trying to become more relevant and give graduates kind of a wider scope within the financial industry with different things, like you said, with marketing and stuff. So that's, that's really cool because I definitely, not to sound ignorant, even though I am, I definitely looked at the financial sector as literally just looking at a screen, numbers, everything. Mm, I thought that. exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. so it's really Absolutely. interesting to hear that yeah. side of it. No, it's a, it's a huge misconception, which as an industry, we don't do a good enough job to kind of get rid of. But actually, you know, you'll find that it doesn't matter if you go into a massive bank, insurance companies, companies that focus on risk, consultancies, there's always such a broad spectrum of opportunities and job roles. So if I think of, you know, consulting is a, a great one as an example, you can go down the route of going kind of really technical consulting for banks and, and asset managers, but you can also look at people operations and actually one of the best assets a company has is its people. So if that's not functioning well, there's a huge opportunity to get involved in that side of things. Marketing, if we don't market ourselves, how do people know about us as companies? So yeah, all I'd say is if, if anyone is considering a career in financial services, just do do the research and actually look at all the options that are available to you, but also, you know, talk to people. You know, uh, one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd say is just reach out to people on LinkedIn, because otherwise, you know, sometimes, yeah, you might not get a response, but actually, you know, if someone reaches out, reaches out to me, I'm, again, a big believer in paying it forward. I've had, you know, some phenomenal mentors, and I still do, and for me, if I don't pay that forward, it's really pointless them giving me their time so yeah find out from people who are in the industry what it's like what roles are available how grad schemes look and feel and just get some genuine insight you know good ways to do that are going to careers fairs at uni looking out for kind of emails and just speaking to people yeah and that we find that transpires across a lot of industries isn't we we've spoken to a lot of people and whether it's in creative analytical financial everyone says especially at this age you just have to be bold and message people so for people who aren't quite comfortable doing stuff like that do you have any advice or how to overcome that how to be that bold (laughs) person on LinkedIn I guess yeah absolutely I think you know it's natural to be a bit apprehensive but again there are so many people around you that you know someone is looking for advice all I'd say is, is just think about what you would want if you were on the other side of that conversation so if someone's interested in the company, actually, you know, it'd be great to, if I was getting an email, I want to know what that person was looking for, what research they've done to date, what career options they're thinking about. And that just helps me think, okay, how can I best help? Um, and what's the best advice that I can give? But also, you know, a big thing that I'm on a journey of is kind of coaching. And this is something that my mentor does with me is she asks me really open-ended questions that help me get to the answer because I think advice is great but actually if you can help someone identify the solution themselves Mm. it's just a lot more powerful so the more information you can give someone about what it is you're looking for and how they can help you know again 
there are going to be people out there who ignore it. I put a fairly sizable bet on the fact that there are going to be a lot of people out there who are remember what it was like to be in that position. And it's not being kind of demotivated by the fact that someone doesn't reply. It's just being like, cool, they're doing them. I'll try someone else. And it's just keep doing it and not getting that kind of sinking feeling in your stomach and being like, I'm going to give up now. Exactly. Mm. 100%. And it's the same when it comes to things like applications. You know, I definitely got dejected when I did it first time around. And again, it's all about just learning from each other conversation you have, each application you have, the feedback that you get. And it's just taking all of that into your next one. You know, again, it's not, you've not failed, you've just learned something. And if you look at it like that, actually, it starts to make things a little easier and a bit less terrifying. Yeah. Mm. And touching on the applications thing, how did you find the general application process for grad schemes and what kind of pearls of wisdom have you kind of gleaned from it? Because you, you had a lot of really interesting jobs in America as well. So it'll be really interesting to know what the difference was applying for them and applying for the grad scheme at yeah, absolutely. So in the US, it, was, it wasn't it was as difficult because because of my kind of specialty in terms of degree, the stuff I did in the US was a bit simpler to get. Grad schemes here, yeah, they're a nightmare. Um, it's, it's a really interesting process. And again, I am not sure as an industry we've got it right yet. I think a lot of really talented graduates fall through the cracks. But again, that's where networking helps. So if someone reaches out to me on LinkedIn and says, look, I'm really interested in St. James's Place, wealth management, investment management, whatever it is, this is the research I've done. I was just wondering if you could tell me more. If that conversation goes well and they continue to, it's a really good back and forth. From my side, I would be straight to our early careers manager and say, look, this person's brilliant. Is there a way we can get them straight through to the video interview stage or even straight through to an assessment center? So, you know, networking is, is so important. It's also such a challenge. It's something that I still find hard to do. But again, the more you practice it, the better you get. Because it's a fine balance between being really keen and impressing on someone how, you know, interested you are. And going a little too far and getting a bit annoying. Maybe sending too many messages. So again, it's a really good thing to practice as much as possible. So if you can do it, if you're in your... You know, you, you start your second year uni or you're looking at internships. It's a really good way to practice for grad scheme interviews. I'd say biggest pearl of wisdom, and it's something I wish someone had told me, if you're in your first year trying to do a spring week, uh, if, if it's in financial services, because a spring week at a lot of places leads to an internship. And if you impress on your internship, that leads to a job offer. Mm. So it's really nice and easy. Mm. And it means that you don't have to spend your final year worrying about dissertations, final exams, getting your 2-1 or your first or whatever, and also having to apply for jobs. In terms of the actual process, again, if you can connect with people, send them your cover letters. So cover letter writing is one of the toughest things yeah. I've found. I think, it's, I think it's harder to write a cover letter than to structure a CV because it, you have to be so concise but give so much detail. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And it's there's an art to it that I haven't quite cracked yet. <laughs> but... Again, my advice would be, if you're going to structure it, a really good, simple structure is a bit about you. So I, you know, mine starts with the fact that I graduated from Durham, graduated from Chicago, and I'm now working at St. James's Place. Then it's, okay, so why me? What is it about me that makes me a good fit for the role? So again, less buzzwords and more, I'm, you know, really good at communication, and then have a really good example of a time where you demonstrated that. So 
if someone's reading it, they can see communication, example, bang, and they know that it's not just you saying what you think they want to know in here. Yeah, mm. like the go-to words on an application, like I'm... I'm a hard worker. Passionate. Yeah. Passionate. Are you skilled in this? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's actually being able to give examples. And, you know, when you're at uni, if you haven't done internships, don't worry. It's what have you done, you know, in terms of clubs you've been involved in or societies or even at school? What kind of things have you done that you can evidence? And then it's why that company? So biggest mistake I made when I was applying originally was mine were all so generic. But if you can really show someone why you're a good fit and why you're a really good fit for their company and their company's a really good fit for you, it just makes it, you know, when someone's reading that, it yeah. really makes you stand out. Because earlier you were talking about networking and the importance. It's almost like rapport has become like the first priority Absolutely. in the application process. It's not experience, it's rapport. So if you talk to them first or if you... Like you said in your cover letter, if you create an essence, but you're almost having a conversation with them, like I can give you this and you can give this to me, that it's so clever to think about it like that because if you personalise the process, I guess it makes it... Mm, definitely. I have, we have a really good example of that is that our friend Dan, so when we worked for High Flyers doing the Times Graduate Careers Survey, I went to an event with him and he wanted to work for GSK and get on their grad scheme. So I introduced him to people and then he got introduced to the early careers manager at GSK and now he's on the grad scheme because he met her, made that connection, kept it going. And through doing that, he managed to get the job. So it really is all about them seeing you as a person and not just another person in an application. Absolutely. And it's, it's exactly that. And it means that when you go for your interviews, they don't just see you as a face that they've got some random facts about. It's they see you as a face and actually you've probably said something that's really memorable and it might come up at your interview. So, you know, don't lie. <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> don't be afraid to really kind of highlight your achievements. Um, your CV and your cover letter are your opportunities to do that before you get to an interview. Obviously, next stage is, is your video interview. Oh. Which, yeah, <laughs> I've had to do a few and they're quite awkward. They're quite uncomfortable because... You had a seat on, tra- on top and you got pyjamas <laughs> yeah. on underneath. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> almost, yeah. Almost every time yeah. I did that, yeah. Really nice suit, really good tie choice, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, my PJs. Um, <laughs> my friend did that for BT, actually. Lizzie, if you're listening, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, yeah, my, uh, so my little sister's going through application processes at the moment, and she said, oh, you know, I feel really uncomfortable the first time she did a video interview. And I just said, what were you wearing? She said, oh, I got a full full suit on, I wanted to make sure I looked really sharp. I said, yeah, but they can only see literally like maybe the top half of your chest <laughs> up. They're not getting anything else. So be comfortable, but also make sure that you're smart. And video interviews, they want to see a bit of personality. That's why they do them. You know, I when I applied originally, it was all done over the phone. And it's really hard to get personality across over a phone conversation. You have to you almost like caricature yourself, don't you? You have to like overemphasize exactly. everything and you feel weird doing it. And yeah. it just sounds awkward. Whereas video interviews, again, it's the, the biggest tips are, first of all, do it on your laptop if you can, if you've got one. If you're doing it on a phone, make sure you've got a really, you know, really good white background behind you that is silent because... There are some horror stories that we've heard where someone literally looked like he'd stumbled out of a club, uh, done it, like, foot against the wall, leaning back, 
Oh my god, almost like an Insta story. <laughs> no. I mean, it's 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 Jeez. genuine automatic turn off. It doesn't matter what you say after that because that first impression is yeah, already you have made. to present yourself well. Exactly. Mm. Um, so my tips for, for video interviews are there are really good little tips and tricks. So if you're doing it on your laptop, you can actually have prompts on your screen. Mm. And it's brilliant because it's like, okay, so you've done your research. So why the company? Why the scheme? Um, and what what is it about you that's really interesting? And what is it about you that's a really good fit? And that's really good in two ways. Because one, with a video interview, you get... 30 seconds to a minute to prepare. So you can have those prompts in front of you and it's really easy to think, okay, this is what I'm gonna say. So it's good to plan. If you also put prompts on the screen, it makes it much less awkward because you can't see your face. Mm. And I think that for me was the biggest distraction was, what is my face doing right now? Yeah, because yeah. you just end up staring at yourself the whole time and you're like, oh, do I look at that angle? <laughs> yeah. It's exactly that. So biggest tip is have the prompts on the screen and just make sure you've done your research because again, it's a massive turn off and it's so quick to see if someone hasn't actually taken the time mm. to think about why they're applying and, and what is mm. what is it about company X, Y or Z that really interests them. Yeah, because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the like, what can I give and like go through your CV and like, I did this experience, I did that experience and then everyone forgets about the fact they're applying to lots of different companies and they have to make it specific. Exactly. Um, and you know, going back to the CV, Actually, if you're applying for a number of different roles, tailor that CV. And with your CVs and cover letters, if you've made a connection with someone who's on a grad scheme or finished a grad scheme, ask if they're happy to look at your CV and your cover letter and give you feedback. You know, it took me a good couple of iterations of my cover letters to get something that was kind of sellable and passable. So yeah, make use of the people around you, make use of people that you know, that you went to school with, that you went to uni with, whatever it is, just get as much feedback as possible yeah i think what's really refreshing actually is because when i was looking into the kind of stuff that you've done in the past and in the states and all your really cool internships and all that kind of i was like wow this guy really has his shit together <laughs> and he knows exactly how to apply for jobs and you definitely do like you've learned loads but like you said at the beginning you applied to so many jobs and I think a lot of people forget that in the background there is a lot of work that goes into these achievements. I think, you know, for me, the, the biggest piece of advice is just research companies because, yes, as much as you're going through the process, they are as well. And that's something we always forget, which is it's got to be right for you as a candidate as much as it has to be for the company. And the thing I think helped me the most when I came to apply after my master's was I chose five or six companies that I really liked the values, I really liked the schemes, and I thought, yeah, I can see myself there. And it just meant that instead of trying to write 15, 20, 30 cover letters, I was writing five or six that I could tailor, that I could spend a really good amount of time on, and that I could personalise. Yeah, and you um, can put your own spin on it as well yeah and you don't get into that kind of blind panic of being like i've got to get a job and it's more just about like i want one of these jobs and that's why you have to have that like intrinsic motivation to do it rather than just being like i need a job exactly because the worst thing and i've had friends who've done it and had to either stick with it or leave is you get a job because you think it's the thing to do so you go for a job at one of the big banks or one of the big four or SJP, wherever it is, just because everybody else is doing it. 
And that's the biggest mistake you can ever make. You've got to do what's right for you. And if you don't know what that is, that's also okay. On that topic, what drew you to SJP? I took a very different approach to my assessment centre at SJP, which was, I did it on crutches. Um, you know, every little point counts, right? So <laughs> Really milk it. Yeah. Exactly. So i I done my ACL and I thought, really good time to have the surgeries the week before that assessment centre. It turned out it wasn't because travelling from London to Sirencester was an absolute nightmare on two crutches. But Jeez, yeah. the biggest difference for me between SJP and the other offers I got was the personal attention and the care. So I got to uh, Sirencester and they invited us up the night before. So with SJP, um, you get invited up the night before, we take you out for dinner and you get to speak to a couple of the current graduates or in my case, former graduates. Um, and it's just a nice way of being able to kind of introduce the company, put you at ease a little bit. And when I got to the hotel, there was a bucket of ice waiting for me. So I'd let them know that I was gonna be on crutches, that I just had surgery. And that personal touch was huge. And it made a massive difference. And then when I came back for my final interview, which was about three, three or four weeks later, I was still on one crutch. And the early careers program manager at that time took half an hour out of her day not to try and sell me the grad scheme, not to try and plug anything, literally just to ask me how my knee was, how physio was, whether there was anything she could do to help. Um, and that really hit home for me. You know, one of the things that I'm really keen on is, is culture. Mm. Um, you know, lucky that the hours I work are really, really good for financial services. But, you know, even if I do work long hours, the people to my right and my left are really good friends. And, you know, it takes all the stress out of work. And that's one of the big things that I'd say that, you know, if you're looking at applying culture and cultural fit should always be so high on your list. A lot of people look at money or, you know, potential exit opportunities before they've even mm. got a job. Mm. Actually, cultural fit, you'll find, is one of the most important aspects of, of your working life. And it's really, really underplayed. Yeah. Mm. And that's such a like, general problem as well, is that you are, when you're looking at grad schemes, you're looking so much into the future. But like, what are my career prospects for this? Rather than being like, on the day to day, am I actually going to enjoy this? And that's why people mm. end up in the wrong job, because they don't live in the present. They're always Absolutely. thinking about the future. 100%. And that's why doing the research is so important early doors. Um, because it just means that you know it's the right fit for you before you put in a ton of effort into the cover letters, the CVs, the assessment process. And it just makes the world of difference when you're applying for a company you genuinely want to work at. Because when you get to interview that just shows naturally mm. that passion and that kind of interest they're not just buzzwords anymore because you can demonstrate you know so much about the company you've got some really great questions you've prepared and you want to know about and then it's just a case of again getting enough practice with assessment centers because there are parts of it that some people will find easier than others and vice versa uh, you know depending on the type of person you are so I don't know if it helped to chat through assessment centers and Mm, definitely yeah yeah, because it is such a skill that you have to hone and I never did any assessment centers because I was like I'm gonna avoid the grad scheme route but I know so many people who have done them they're just like they're the most demoralizing things I can't ever do it again so it would be really interesting to hear about that yeah yeah absolutely so generally you'll have three or four separate components um you always always have a group task and that's to see a couple of things one can they automatically see that person who just railroads everything um, you know, there's a place and a time for confidence and you should definitely be confident but you should never bulldoze anybody 
at all. Mm, so we um, look like apprentice candidates. <laughs> quite literally. Um, so group exercises, I think, is something that people probably find the most difficult because you, with a bunch of people you've never met, you've got people on the outside of the room looking at you. You don't know who's assessing you, what they're looking for. Oh God, that must be so bizarre. And you get a case study that you've never seen before. Yeah. So there are a few things that I would suggest, and this is regardless of whether you're thinking financial services or not, for group exercises, there are really good few tips that I've picked up along the way. The first is on the piece of paper in front of you, write everybody's name down in terms of where they're sitting so that when you're speaking to them, you can have a quick look and say, oh, so you know what you said about X, Y, and Z was really interesting, but how about we go down this route? Or actually, that was a really good point. And it just shows that you've taken, again, taken the time to get to know people, even in that short time frame. You know, so, oh, you know, Sophie, you made a really good point about whatever the case study's on. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it could really fit into this piece of analysis that I've just done. And instantly you feel, you saying my name makes such a difference to the statement. And it just makes the other person feel a bit more comfortable you feel a bit more comfortable and then it turns into a conversation not a group exercise mm. so that's the first thing and it's a really easy thing to do second thing is to try and take a role but not be really obli- kind of obvious about it so there are really there are several, several things one is actually guys you know i've got a watch on i'm happy to keep time is everyone okay if i just let us know when there's 15 minutes left and when there's five minutes left someone taking kind of the the opportunity to say Oh, I'm more than happy to make notes uh, as we go along because I'm, you know, I'm not too bad at multitasking and I'm really happy to do that. And then someone says at the end, uh, guys, it's been really good. Would it be okay if we just summarised? So I think the key points we've made are X, Y, and Z. Does everyone agree with that? And it's ways that you can just show and demonstrate leadership capabilities that fundamentally is what people are looking for without being having to feel like you need to bulldoze someone else to get your point across. And just on that point, if you do speak at the same time as someone else, that's not a bad thing. It happens in meetings all the time. Just say, really sorry, please continue. Or they might say that to you. So again, there's things that you can do from that side. I think the other thing with group tasks is you're always gonna have a couple of people who are naturally really confident. You're also gonna have people who have incredible insight and will add a huge amount to you as a group, but who maybe don't feel that comfortable speaking in that kind of an environment. And actually, one of the biggest things that I've learned is those people often have the best things to say. So bring them into the conversation and just say, look, we were speaking earlier. You had a really, really good point. I think it's really good to share with the group. Mm. Again, it's a different type of leadership that you're showing. But again, you're showing it's not about you, it's about the team. And it gets rid of that kind of competitive thing that you would expect going into yeah. those sort of group situations. And that was always what intimidated me. I'm quite a competitive person. And so I would have thought I would have got, on, got into there and be like, right, it's all about me. But actually bringing people in and being like, actually, we work together. It's not being competitive, but it's also showing you in a good light. 100%. And so, you know, I have been on a few dinners that we've done with some of the prospective graduates this year. And I've seen the early careers program manager the next day. And she said to me, Oh, they didn't really work that well as a group, which is a surprise because they gelled so well last night. And it's because as soon as you get into that environment, you automatically see it as a competition. Mm-hmm. When actually the best group exercises are the ones where you work collectively as a team. 
come up with a really, really good answer where everyone's been able to contribute. Because if you can make other people look good, make you look good, but also if you guys as a group can come to a really well thought out, out well thought out answer and have kind of got you know the figures right or whatever it is, it just makes every single person in that room get a tick. Yeah, and I, I actually work in um, leadership consulting. So the, honestly, the things, you can run one of these global programs. I'm not even joking, it's brilliant. I, I wanted to bring this up to you later on actually about um, your experience of mentoring and coaching, which you mentioned earlier. And even as you're discussing the group situations in assessment centres, that's where coaching can come in handy because as opposed to overpowering the situation, the way you can get people who don't necessarily speak as much but have good ideas is by asking them open questions because you're not forcing them to speak. You're saying, what do you think? When you mentor and coach, how do you kind of introduce these tips into your training, I guess? So coaching is something that I'm still trying to get my head around. So I'm really fortunate that my one of my mentors is a lady called Gemma Cubitt who is unbelievable at getting the best out of me as an individual um, so she I hope she if she listens to this she doesn't mind me plugging it um, <laughs> so she's on the Mailer Campbell coaching course focused on executive leadership and one of the things that she excels at is helping me get to the answer on my own so I'll go to her and say I'm having this problem or do you have any advice and she won't give me any advice at all if I directly ask for it, she will. But she'll just ask me exactly as you said, open any questions. Okay, so you know, you said this, but have you you know, what other options have you thought about? Or okay, so you're having this problem, but you know, have you thought about what the other person on the other you know, other side of it thinks, how they're kind of looking at the in the, the problem? Um and one of the biggest tips she gave me that I use a lot is is framing. You know, it's really, really interesting to think about conversations that I've had, and I'm sure you guys can probably relate to this, where you've gone in and thought, right, I need to get this, this, and this out of this conversation. So you've probably gone in with what you want to get out of it, and you've not really thought about the other person, how they like to communicate, what they're thinking about that whole conversation. You gave a kind of tunnel vision. Exactly. And actually, the you know, just having that kind of foresight to say, okay, I'm going into a conversation with X, I know that they're like this, or they communicate like this. I know that this is what I need to get out of it, but how do I best communicate that to them in a way that's effective for me to get what I need out of it, but also that means that it's a conversation, not someone talking at someone else? Yeah, there is a big difference between mentoring and coaching, as you just explained, because coaching is when you enable them to get to the answer themselves, and mentoring is when you guide them towards the answer. But I think they're kind of like misunderstood with each other sometimes, aren't they? And they, they should be used in completely different contexts. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, so I currently mentor a couple of IEO placement students. And I also am a buddy for someone in the intake below me. And I think for me, it's looking at what my experiences were, the mistakes in particular that I've made, which have been a lot. And it's using that to help inform kind of their thought process so you know biggest one of the biggest kind of challenges as a rotational graduate is what what do I do next and how do I go about thinking about that I you know again probably across the industry it's not something we do brilliantly is giving that kind of support in terms of 
you know, these are the options you have. Actually, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And again, it's something that, that Gemma really helped me with, which is, okay, you know, you want to be as effective as possible going forward, but you also want to figure out what it is you want to do. So actually take feedback from previous rotations, from managers, from colleagues, and then use that to identify development areas. So, okay, so one of the things I do is, I say at the end of a rotation with my, my buddy Eloise, we go through three things that she's done really well or think that have gone really well and three things that she thinks are development areas. Mm-hmm. And then we focus our kind of conversations on what those development areas are, how she best thinks that she can kind of develop in that area, what rotations might be good. And actually from her side, hopefully, she'll probably correct me on this when I see it next. <laughs> but hopefully from her side, it just means that, again, because she's getting to the answer, helps her flesh out her thought process and now she's got a buddy and I know that she she's using that kind of technique and that way of thinking about things as well so I think again it's also being you when you get onto a grad scheme there's a certain level of arrogance that comes with it mm-hmm. because you've got a position at x y and z company and it's just being self-aware enough to know that you're not anywhere near the finished product and you've got so much to learn and being self-aware enough to say okay what are my development areas and actually how do I go about you know improving who do I talk to who do I work with um, and who do I know fundamentally that is really good in that area Mm. it's stopping those limiting beliefs isn't it because it's so easy to obviously imposter syndrome hits graduates like there's no tomorrow and um, we talk about this quite a lot Mm. don't we when you when you start off a new job as a graduate you kind of instantly turn to look at what you're not doing as, as well but like you said if you look at them as developmental points you look at the positives and where you can develop on it's it's never a negative it's just something to look forward to it's something Absolutely. to keep driving you to keep pushing yeah. you and stuff it's just a, the, the way to look at it is it's a new challenge yeah and it's just something that again it's just going to help you become more rounded rather than oh, I'm really bad at it mm-hmm. if that's the attitude you have you're always going to be bad at it but again having a really good network around you just means that you will always know someone who's really really good at whatever it is yeah and therefore just having a half an hour conversation with them it makes a world of difference yeah mm-hmm. so what else can you tell us about assessment centers yeah absolutely so i think obviously there's the the cultural fit interview but that's really nice and simple it's just making sure you've got uh, enough examples about user person leadership times when you you know got rejected from something and how you came back and demonstrated resilience. So really good framework is star, situation, task, action, result. And you can find that online. I think the thing that's probably toughest after the group exercises when you have to do a presentation and a bunch of analysis. Mm. So generally companies will throw a case study at you that has a load of information, some of it relevant, some of it not, and then ask you to come up with a 10 to 15 minute presentation that's then followed by questions and answers. And that can be really, really yeah. terrifying. Because presenting in it itself is difficult, let alone having yeah, to answer questions on a fly as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And there is there are things that you can do, and I'll run through some of the, the kind of tips that I kind of thought of and used when I was going through the, the processes. First thing I'd say is, is make sure you read, you get really good at skim reading. So whether it's reading newspapers, articles, whatever it is, just be really good at skim reading. And then from that whatever you've read, just be able to write in a couple of bullet points what the article's about or what the book's about or whatever it is 
So you just get into the habit of kind of picking out the key points and being able to synthesize them. And then after that, it's just worrying about the presentation. So the hard bit is figuring out what's relevant and then making sure that, again, you've kind of closed off all of the loops. So the biggest issue I've heard people face during Q&A is they get phased if someone kind of challenges what they've said. So, oh, why didn't you think about this or why didn't you think about that? So actually one of the biggest tips I have is when you're going through something and you come up with a recommendation, it's also really, really good at the end of your presentation to say, I also thought about this factor and this factor, but I didn't feel they were as important as what I've discussed because of X, Y, and Z. So it's showing that not only have you hopefully got to the kind of the crux of the case, but also you thought about other options, you thought about potential risks, that's another really good one. So actually you've come up with this strategy or this recommendation, but what are the risks? And if you had next steps, you know, what would you do? So again, treat it almost as if you were doing it for real, as if you were a graduate already, they'd ask you to go away and look at this stuff and you actually had to form a recommendation because if you can get yourself into that mindset, it just makes a world of difference when it comes to presenting. And it also means that if you've covered off as much as you physically can mm. in your presentation, there's a limited amount that you can then get asked and challenged about. Mm. So yeah. it just means yeah, that- Yeah, preempting it, exactly making sure that. that you don't get on that defense mechanism as soon as they ask you anything you don't know about. Exactly, because you know, unless you've been through that cycle a couple of times, it's really easy to get faced by a challenge and it's just, uh, 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 and then you just lose that credibility that you potentially built up. Whereas if you can really kind of, again, thinking about framing as we were talking about earlier, if you can think about all of the different options that are available, yes, you pick one and you've got your rationale behind it, but you can also say, but actually from a commercial and an acumen perspective, it just shows that you've thought much broader than just answering the question or the questions that you got asked. So would you say a good tip as well is kind of envisioning what's the worst possible question you can be asked and answering it before you can go into the room? Yeah, potentially, or just not even, you don't necessarily need to answer it, but it's if you can think about what the worst thing that might get asked is, if you've got the time, just in your head kind of think, what would my response be? The worst thing you can do, and it's really easy for me to say it in the position that I'm in, having gone through it and come out the other side. Hindsight's Great it's thing. such a good thing. Um, <laughs> is the worst thing you can do is panic. Um, they're not there to catch you out, and they're not there to be rude or, or mean or anything like that. It's literally they just want to see can you think on your feet, and actually have you read the right? Have you read enough, and have you analysed the right points? So what they'll try and do occasionally is if you maybe miss the point, they'll try and challenge you and say, oh, but you know, did you think about that? And actually, a really good response is, oh, do you know what, I didn't, but after this, I'll go away, again, treating it like you were there and doing it for real. I'm going to go away, I'll look into that straight away, and I'll let you know by the end of the day. Mm, it's that willingness to kind of learn and make improvements and not just be like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. No, that sort exactly. Of yeah. and it's, it, again, it's showing commercial acumen. It's, oh, you know what, I didn't think about that. But as a graduate, you're not expected to the answer to everything mm. you but what you are expected to do is take on feedback and then learn from it so you know treating it like a real almost like a real presentation actually helps in that regard as well yeah i think that's really good advice and thank you so much for sharing that because graduates kind of feel like they they're in a place where they have to prove themselves 
and a lot of people kind of default to I need to know every answer to every question yeah. but that's not the case if right. you don't know the answer to a question like you said happily just stand there think about it and say I don't have the, the answer to that question yet um, or it's not my area to answer that question and then you kind of round it off and <laughs> may, and maybe answer something similar but you know it's, it's that kind it's of showing that vulnerability yeah and being like actually I'm a human being I'm not perfect but I am really malleable and willing to learn exactly. and willing yeah. to get better yeah 100% and you know the worst thing you can do is stand there and try and make an answer up and it's you can see it exactly yeah. you can it, see it, it happening it's so apparent whereas actually if you say either say look I don't know about that but I'll go away I'll do some research something like that or you actually say you know what, I'm not familiar with that. It's not something that I've explored. But if I had to make assumptions, then I'd say X, Y, and Z, you know, make sensible assumptions. And that means that Y, right? So what again, what you're doing there is you're saying, you're admitting the vulnerability, you're admitting you don't know, but actually what you're not doing is giving up. You're not just saying, oh, I don't know, so just tell me. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know, but I'm willing to get there and if you can help me, you know, that's great. And that's what would happen in a real situation is, if you didn't know, then if I was on the other side of that conversation, I'd either try and coach you to the answer and ask open-ended questions, or I'd say, okay, well, that's not a problem. If you go away, this is some, these are some really good resources. This is where you should probably start looking. Just come back to me as soon as you can. Mm, and, there's, and there's no shame in not knowing things. I think the people I respect most when I go into meetings are the people who, they have a question after the meeting, they just say, oh, sorry, what did you mean by that? Or I've not come across this before. 100%. And they are the people that are like, everyone's like, oh, okay, cool. But actually in your head the whole time, you're just like, everyone's going to think I'm an absolute wally for not knowing this. But actually it just makes you seem like a much more mature and interesting person because you want to actually engage and learn. And, you know, if you're in an actual meeting, how many people probably wanted to ask that question mm. but yeah. didn't have... Just thought exactly that. Thought, yeah. oh, it's going to make me sound stupid, or I should know that. Again, you know, whatever career path you choose, fundamentally, if you know everything, then you're going to be pretty bored. Mm-hmm. You know, where have you got to go from that? Exactly. And part of what I love about working in financial services is I learn something new every day. There are new challenges, and it just means that it's an opportunity to learn. Again, going back to what we were saying earlier, it's you're not. You, again, you're not expected to know everything. What you are expected to do when you come for an interview in an assessment centre is know about the company, know as much about the industry as, you know, as feasible, and know why you're applying. And if you have that solid kind of base level, then at, you know, after that, it's you know, sometimes you have a bad day, sometimes you shine, and you're going to have bad days, and it's just getting back on your feet, picking yourself up, and going again. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, it's brilliant. <laughs> I just also want to ask you personally as well, since you've worked in the financial sector, can you pinpoint your key achievement, like your highlight? So I've been fortunate enough to have worked in really small teams. So there have been, you know, things that I've been exposed to that have been phenomenal. So I think one is, so my mentor Gemma was also my manager in my last rotation of the graduate scheme and we delivered a completely new operating model for a large region of you know for St James's Place in the south and west of England and in Ireland we kind of revolutionized how we think about internal consulting and how we add value to our financial advisor practices so that was definitely one and that was a really cool project because it was just a couple of us kind of getting stuck in and we managed to deliver it in a couple of months the other one 
for me personally is, you know, not having had a financial degree. So I didn't do economics, n- no economics, no maths since GCSEs. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've done my CFA level one, so Chartered Financial Analyst exams. Um, and I, you know, passed that first time and I wasn't too far off being top 10% in the world. And for me to have that as an achievement, considering I don't have the background, considering I don't I kind of have the technical expertise and it's something that I'm working on, that was a really big moment for me. Mm, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So cool. Um, but yeah, and it just, I, I guess the one thing I'd say from that is don't be discouraged if you're not studying economics or you're not studying accounting and finance. It doesn't matter. What matters is your potential and, again, your willingness to, to learn and get stuck in. Mm. Mm. On the flip side of the coin... What's been the most challenging thing about working in the financial sector? Oh, so <laughs> I think there's, there's a few. So from a grad scheme perspective, generally, um, I think the biggest challenge is you always want to impress and you feel like you have to impress. You feel like once you get there, you're still in kind of competition mode. So you have to be the best. You have to excel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my case personally, it meant I ended up taking on way too much and I delivered things that were that were good, that were okay, but nothing that was excellent. Um, and it took me a couple of rotations to really figure out that actually saying no's not a bad thing, as long as you can say, okay, you know, you want me to take that on? Absolutely, but I've got these other things, what do you want me to prioritise? And having that frank conversation with your manager. Um, I think another thing, and it's probably dependent on where you work is, having a manager or managers if you're on a rotational scheme that are open enough with you to give you constructive feedback i think you know sjp has an unbelievable culture but something we're not great at is having those tough conversations um which means that sometimes you keep making the same mistake and it might be great when you're in one area and you might think oh it's gone brilliantly you go into another area you make the same mistake and actually you get caught out on it and you just didn't realize so i think another thing is and it's really tough to make yourself vulnerable because it feels like when someone gives you constructive feedback, it can feel demoralizing and it feels like I'm, it's like a personal I'm, attack yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing a good job. But actually you've, you got, to, you've got to put that to one side. Mm. And it's you've got to understand and appreciate that if someone's taking the time to give you that feedback, they're doing it because they want you to improve and they want you to just be better and as, as good as you can. Um, so I think something I do with all of my managers is contract right at the start and I say, look, if I'm not doing something right, if I've made a mistake, please pick me up on it there and then. Because what I don't want, you know, and what you should never want is to add more work onto what your colleagues are doing. And it's something that happens a lot with grads. And I know managers who struggled with it, which is that they haven't had that honest conversation. And a grad has sent, you know, a couple of pieces of work in that just had to be edited. Basically, the manager had to redo it. And it's not great for the manager, but it's also really not good for the grad. And it's not the grad's fault because they just didn't know. So I think taking on too much and making sure that you get regular feedback are two big challenges. I think the third biggest challenge is how to network. Um, It's not something you get kind of taught. It's not something that people are great at uh, naturally. And it can be really, really difficult to do. What, again, I would say is a practice, but B, keep conversations light and keep conversations interesting for the other person. You know, the worst thing you can do is just talk at someone and get what you need out of it, but 
if that's how your relationship is, fundamentally there's not really a relationship there. So effective networking and being really smart about it and maintaining relationships, especially on a rotational scheme, you never know when people, you're gonna need people's help or actually, you know, you never know when you're gonna be in a team environment that you've really enjoyed again like that. So it's really important, lunches, coffees, and just regular meetings. So those are probably the three biggest challenges, but again, there are really good ways to mitigate them. Mm, and I think that's a really interesting point to kind of end it on is that throughout what you've said, you've kind of weaved through the notion that it's all about other people as well, because we get so wrapped up in ourselves and actually it's learning how to communicate with other people, learning what suits other people best, mm-hmm. how to engage everybody in a conversation rather than just being like, this is all about me, head down, let's get on with it. Yeah, 100%. And something we do as a company is, is called Insights. So you take a, a questionnaire and it's, are you outgoing and very social or actually you're quite reserved, quite quiet? And how does that impact on your ability to communicate? But also if you're someone who is, so for me, I'm very yellow, which means I'm really optimistic, very happy. Bit. Bit. Woo, woo. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, <laughs> But actually for me to have a conversation with someone who is you know a bit more reserved if i go in all guns blazing then probably isn't going to go down that well whereas if i actually hone it in a little bit and actually appreciate that someone else wants to communicate in a different way so it might be that i want to have a conversation with you and it starts with oh how are you doing how's your weekend other people just want to be like okay what are we talking about let's get straight to it yeah and it's appreciating those differences and again it's if you, the more you expand your network, the more you get to understand and appreciate how people like to communicate and how people like to work. And again, it's another challenge from a, from a graduate perspective, especially when you start going to meetings with senior management, which is actually some of them will happily have a conversation with you about the weather and others just want you to tell them exactly what they need to know and then leave. And it's, you know, finding your way. But again, that's where having your network helps because there will be people who've had conversations with senior managers before and they know exactly what to do and exactly what not to do. Yeah, so insightful, isn't it? Yeah, so great. So to wrap up every podcast, we end with a lovely cringy pun. So Akil, how are you going to continue to grad life by the horns? So for me, it's just keep learning. You know, I've got, like I said, I've got Gemma as a a brilliant mentor. I've got some phenomenal managers at, at SJP. I've got some incredible colleagues. It's just about learning from them but also taking feedback from people that I work with and just make sure that I'm as effective as possible in my job and I'm also adding as much value to my colleagues, people around me, yeah, as possible. Brilliant. Amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank Brilliant. you, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. understand that Becky and I are obviously biased because we host this podcast obviously but don't know about you guys whether you know literally nothing about the financial sector like Becky or I or if you know a lot like Akil we took so much from this conversation and we really really hope you guys did too thank you ever so much Akil you're brilliant you're lovely and you're just great to chat to about these things and for giving advice I think a personal highlight for me I don't know about you guys was the assessment centre I cannot even tell you how much of a hot topic assessment centres were in my final year all my friends were absolutely bricking it for assessment centres and they just had no idea what to expect what they needed to do to prepare and how to bring their best self 
and Akil manages to break this down into really great fundamental tips and strategies that kind of you can just pocket and either use them yourself or at least pass them on to someone who you think would benefit from hearing them. Another highlight for me, I would say, was talking about going abroad to study. He basically said, do it. 100%, if you're thinking about it, don't hesitate, don't let anything hold you back, go for it. We're young, you need to do the things that you gravitate towards and you enjoy. And he took so much from going to the University of Chicago. Guys, honestly, if you don't believe me, look at his LinkedIn. You'll be absolutely astonished at the kinds of things he has done at such a young age and it completely makes his job and his role at St James's Place really understandable as a consultant and a mentor for millennials because he just knows his stuff and it's brilliant. On that topic, if you guys have any questions about anything we spoke about in this episode with a kill, please drop him a message on LinkedIn. He is pretty active, he is really forthcoming and he is so happy to help. You can't even explain how good he is with this kind of stuff. If you would prefer though, you can always drop Becky and I a message through the podcast Instagram at gradlifebythehorns and we are happy to pass that on to him. We really hope you took something away from this episode. Have a great two weeks and we will see you very soon. Bye!